0: Welcome to the Hutchmoot Podcast, a library of sessions recorded at the Rabbit Room's annual conference, which celebrates art, music, story, and faith in all their many intersections. Today on the Hutchmoot Podcast, we're excited to share with you a session led by Malcolm Geit and Mark Minnell called Poetry, Imagination's Wake-Up Call from 2020's *Hutchmoot Homebound. Despite its detractors, poetry couldn't be more vital in our present age since it is one of the most powerful means of reconciling our enlightenment-divorced reason and imagination. In conversation with Mark Mennell, the poet, priest, and scholar Malcolm Geit draws from Samuel Taylor Coleridge, C.S. Lewis, and others to make his case. Enjoy.
1: So I'm just driving on my way home from uh, Cambridge, having done one or two things in the town and then spent some time with Malcolm Guite at his home about 25 minutes out of the town. And um, it was a very stimulating conversation. I'd never met him before, but obviously I've read uh, a lot of what he has written, both his poetry, and his non-fiction, particularly his uh, epic biography of Samuel Taylor Coleridge, uh, a life seen through the lens of that early epic poem that Coleridge wrote, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. And uh, we had a very stimulating conversation, uh, particularly focused on the importance of uh, the imagination rather than the reductionism that many of us face in the Western world uh, of reducing human beings either to our functions or to our reason. And uh, Coleridge, amongst many, were were repelled by this kind of reductionism and were trying to rebalance things, as were people like C.S. Lewis. And so that's why I think... Uh, these issues will be of great value and importance to fellow rabbits during and Homebound. So I hope you enjoy uh, the conversation as we filmed it as much as I enjoyed being part of it. We can't be in Oxford this year because of the restrictions of which we're all aware and we can't be in Nashville this October. Um, so I've come
2: to a garden in rural Cambridgeshire. Oh, Cambridgeshire. We are Cambridgeshire still, we're just on the, the borders of... Cam- Cambridgeshire is about to meet Essex and Suffolk.
1: Right. it's so a mighty it's, culture clash about There's a real sort of here. border town feel
2: here. Absolutely. Yes, um, that's
1: right. And um, I'm with Malcolm Guide and it's a real uh, joy and privilege to be able to spend a bit of time together this afternoon. We're going to talk about poetry amongst other things. Indeed, um, and I thought I'd, I'd start by saying that I'd come via Cambridge to be here, and I was um, seeing my son, who's, who's living there, and again, just walking around and driving through the town. It's such a beautiful place. It is. It's astonishing. And it, it's September, but it's a beautiful sort of
2: you know Indian summer. It is exactly so. Now, I was. I'm always when I all the years I've lived in Cambridge. I I've always been very glad to have visitors, because it suddenly reminds me what a beautiful place I live in, and the joy of showing them mm. the things, you know, that I've foolishly taken for granted. And, and you know,
1: now. walking along the backs, so there's just nowhere like that Well, yeah. Earth. I mean,
2: there's all the layers of memory of my yeah. own time and there as an undergraduate, but for me, it's a much more deeply layered memory. I mean, for example, when I came to write the book on Coleridge, I, I thoroughly enjoyed writing the chapters on Coleridge as an undergraduate at mm. Cambridge. and making many of exactly the same sort of extravagant errors that I have to say I committed again myself, you know. Well, maybe we Two can go into detail, detail a bit later. We won't <laughs> go into detail later. But, so he was at Jesus College. Um, I was at Pembroke. But, uh, you know, it meant I could walk down the streets that he walked down. I could go and see his rooms in, in, in Jesus. and um, But at the same time, I could think, well, just across the road at Christ's Milton was there. and um, uh, So the number of poets I... I mean, I went to Pembroke because Edmund Spencer... Was there, and uh, Spencer's poetry was, and then and still is hugely uh, important. And you, you read English? I read English, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I...
1: So, uh, w- what the thought that occurred to me um, this morning was: you're in such a beautiful place. How can you not write poetry? How can you not enjoy poetry? Um, but there will be detractors, I think, who would say this is just this is. an uh, an alternative universe this is sort of airy-fairy and Mm. remote and poetry is a bit like that too what what would you say to them
2: well the people who say that kind of thing are simply um, reiterating I think a set of ideas that were bedded into us uh, so long ago that they've become as they say ide resu we we scarcely question them but they are highly questionable assumptions those are ideas that were set out really during the height of the Enlightenment Mm -hmm when a kind of great divorce took place to coin a phrase, be, to, to coin a phrase between, um, between reason and imagination but that was one aspect of a much bigger one which is a split a split between the so-called subjective and objective world and a kind of interiorization and privatization of all value so looking out and seeing meaning, seeing glimmerings of truth having some intuition of, of purpose and beauty That was seen as nothing to do with the facts of the case. That was simply some private interior, you know, inexplicable and accidental chemical reaction in your brain, but had nothing to do with the world of fact, which was seen very much as the world of quantity, Mm -hmm. and as accessible to the language of mathematics, rather than to the language of poetry. So there was an assumption that you could split these two things Mm -hmm. in half. This was a, you know, beginning in the late 17th century and reaching its apotheosis probably in in the mid 19th, late 19th century. Of course it was wrong in, in almost every respect, in, in that as, as scientists themselves, very quick in the 20th century soon mm-hmm. began to discover people like Heisenberg and others, realising that actually the observer and the questions the observer asks are as big and important a part of the reality as anything else. And in fact the nature of the reality itself rather depends on the questions, as in, mm-hmm. as in um, quantum, you know. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: you're going to impact the yeah. environment that you're in. You're not like.
2: only going to impact it, but your very mode of perceiving it is the environment that you're mm. in. Um, you know, the mind itself is constantly making and shaping. Um, so, uh, anyway, the big split between the subjective and the objective, I think, was always false because it, one thing it can't account for is consciousness. Because mm. when you say, I am, The I that's doing the saying, you know, is the subject, if you like, you're subjectively aware of your existence. But subject, verb, Mm -hmm. I'm aware, object, what am I aware of? The very, my very subject. You know, when you say I am, you are object and subject at the same time. So to build a system of philosophy in which object and subject must always be completely different, is really... uh, and that's something that Coleridge, whom I love so much, spent a long time, you know, thinking through. But nevertheless, the split was made. One kind of knowledge, the knowledge accessible to observation and testing of material things, the, the knowledge which gave an account of things by reducing them to their smallest components and assuming that the immense heap of little things left was all there was, that reductive anatomizing, that was privileged. Mm. And that was, and it was of course very helpful, it helps you to make digital watches and refrigerators, mm. and these are very useful things. But it's a bit like putting blinkers on a horse to get it to go one way and mm. not see down the other side alleys. We put some blinkers on and we forgot to take them off. So a consequence of that was that people were given the impression that, that the entire realm of affect, if you like, mm. which includes everything that makes life worth living. Mm. You know, notions of truth and duty and honor and joy and obviously, supremely behind and before all those things, love, all fell. There was a kind of epistemological apartheid, mm-hmm. if you like, mm-hmm. you know. And there was the privileged main economy of the of the dry scientific fact. economy, being the operative word. The economy actually. being, and it was all about exploiting the yep. world as well. You, you demythologized it in order to exploit mm. it, and then you had these little Bantu stands, you know, of emotional feeling, which was the pr- 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 the realm and and and. and uh, and kingdom of the artists, but it was fine as long as it didn't make any difference to anything.
1: And so there's an fun. irony there, isn't there? Yeah. Because um, the enlightened mind and culture regards you yeah. know the artistic, the poetic, whatever, yeah. as escapist. Whereas yeah. the irony is that it's the
2: exact opposite. Yeah, yeah the exact opposite. So what we did, in a way, quite fantastically, from the mid, mid well, late seventeenth century onwards, was was to construct a picture of the world devoid of purpose, or meaning, uh, or soul, uh, spirit, um, consisting only of the verifiably visible and quantifiable things. Now, actually, that was a fantasy. Mm. To pretend that the world was empty of meaning was, 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 was to impose upon it mm. something that's not the case, because the universal witness of all human cultures, except the Western scientific one for the last you know couple of hundred years, and mm. not even that consistently, has been that the world is drenched with meaning, that it's full of intimations of immortality, that there's a vast and subtle network of correspondence between what's out there and what's in here, and that every passing breeze and the fall of a leaf or the, the unfolding of a seed not only are what they are beautifully in themselves, and rightly so, they are signs of who we are and what we are. Mm. If you take, I mean, here we are sitting under this wonderful Indian bean tree. If you think about the way we describe, say, history, feminist. We, we talk about roots and branches. We can't help but talk about roots and branches, but we need to do the same for patterns of thought. Um, we, we, we cannot help drawing on trees in their fruitfulness, in their longevity, in the way they put on rings, as ways of talking about what it's like to be human. And yet trees and human beings are quite distinct things. And if we were all just you know, an accidental concatenation of meaningless atoms swirling around in the void. And if our consciousness was, in, was as they they taught us to say, uh, you know, in, in when I was doing going doing the school of hard atheism in my hard atheist days, was a mere epiphenomenon. You mm-hmm. know, an accidental miasma thrown up um, to no purpose by the, the happenstance of enzymes and selfish mm-hmm. genes. and when so. If that's the case, and that it's you know, it's it's utterly without. Correspondence or purpose in an otherwise meaningless material. Output. We dance to the why, of DNA. Why would it be yeah. that a tree corresponds so completely within a human experience mm. as does the dawn or the coming mm. of the night or the rise of the moon, and uh, all of poetry? But if you think particularly about biblical poetry, is constantly noticing that the outer expresses the inner and that the inner clothes the outer. And we temporarily tried to construct a world in which that correspondence isn't there. And the inner is just a tiny isolated, you know, Mm. illusion in the concovative. Well, that's just not the case. So, in fact, of course, a lot of science itself is now recovering from that. And and, um, a lot of historians and philosophers of science have become very suspicious of reductiveness and are more interested in how coherence works across systems Mm. rather than um, looking at something entirely blind. So, uh,
1: if we pick up something from the enlightened mindset of escapism, I mean, I think that, that a biblical worldview would argue that that is in itself escapist from the reality of God. Oh yeah. And it takes someone. I, I'm reminded of a, a line from Aldous Huxley who who said that actually it was an act. It was a, it was a preference for there not to be meaning as a sort of a preference to enable liberation. In oh yeah, this yeah.
2: No, you can see exactly where, why there was a desire. I mean, one of the ironies of the Enlightenment is that it claimed it was being entirely objective in the kind of questions it asked and the kind of kind of answers it found, as though there were no no um, agenda or interest in it. But actually, there was a very strong agenda and interest. I mean, from Bacon's essays onward. One of which was the domination of nature. Mm. That in order to thoroughly exploit nature, we needed to feel a mastery over nature that we couldn't feel if nature was half inside us and we were half inside it and there was a kinship. So that nature had to be (coughs) depersonalized and demythologized in order to be exploited. And um, so there was an agenda there. But there was a much stronger and in many respects darker agenda, which sounded wonderful and then the great key word of it was autonomy,
1: Mm.
2: from autonomos, Mm -hmm. self-law, and that's why choice is such an important word in the the liberal enlightenment discourse, and choice is a wonderful thing, freedom of choice is right at the core of Christian theology as well, but in Christian theology, the freedom of choice is exercised within a hierarchy and a covenant, and in a mutuality with a creator God, who's given us that freedom. And his his service is perfect freedom, it turns out. but I mean, it was Kant who particularly put autonomy as you know, as an absolutely key thing. The idea that we should be what autonomy means is literally being a law unto ourselves, that we should, as human beings, be unconstrained by anything other than our will and our choice. And eventually that that road leads to Nietzsche, and through Nietzsche it leads to Nietzsche's madness. yeah, because of course, we're not unconstrained. I mean, we're constrained by the size and shape of our body, we're constrained by the circumstances in which we're born, by the shape of our minds. Yeah. The really great thing is to discover a beautiful dance-like movement of freedom, which uses our very constraints for inspiration and And form. sees them as a gift. I mean, that's why I write formal poetry. My, I, I write formal poetry in the sense of using sonnets and villanelles, not only because I think the forms are beautiful, but I write it as an act of defiance against the pseudo-liberty of our age, which thinks that it's only without constraint that you find expression. On the contrary, you know, you enjoy a great game of chess because you both know the rules and keep them, you know, and the offside rule in football, complicated as it is, is what makes it a beautiful game. Um, and, uh, you know, um, Shakespeare puts it brilliantly, I think it's in The Winter's Tale, it's Autolycus who says, Our poetry is a current which flies each bounded chase. Mm. And that's the image of a, a river flowing faster because of these constraining banks mm. but actually overflowing occasionally the wave hits the bank and the fine spray goes over and you get that in poetry all the time where because you're about to have the turn of a line or where you change it a little bit or you shift the meter and the very free song of doing that is what gives the meaning in, to the poet so um yeah i think if we're going to recover we not only re- need to recover the gift of imagination as a way of seeing things and recognise that the subjective is as good a clue to reality as the objective and the great artist to put the two eyes together and see both of them. But we're really going to have to recover, and this would be the great psychic and spiritual revolution, we're going to have to recover worship, we're going to have to recover the idea that we become ourselves precisely when we don't put ourselves first that as soon as we start saying to ourselves, we, as what the serpent said to Adam and Eve, you know, ye shall be as gods, we we, we cease even to be human. We become prey to our inhuman appetites. That's what actually happens. But as soon as we say there is a God whom I will delight in and adore and worship, and whom I will obey, not because he's some capricious tyrant, but because he knows who I am better than I do. And therefore, what he commands is precisely my flourishing. So that's, that's a spiritual revolution to get back to that. And uh, that's why those who advocated are sometimes resented and resisted, mm. as though they were... The so the notion of
1: having someone who does call the shots is perceived yeah. to
2: be constraining, whereas
1: ironically yeah. it's not.
2: Yeah, well it would be constraining if it was anybody, if it was another human right. being. I mean, the psalm is very clear, put not your trust in princes, nor in any child of man. I'm I'm, I'm with, with the last Christian rebel against misuse of human authority to the very last. Mm. But the basis of the rebellion is not anarchy, mm. but the beauty of the divine order, mm. which has been traduced by the temporary administration. So
1: um, this is a book. Uh, y- came out what 10 years ago or something?
2: Or yeah yeah it was um it's literally chasing funny enough it's its 10th anniversary i suppose yeah right. it was first published as a you know as a ridiculously expensive academic hardback hmm. in 2010 and then we, they put it in paperback in right. 2012 so normal people could buy it so normal um, um faith it. hope and
1: poetry i, I thoroughly enjoyed this and yeah. um, we were chatting earlier about c.s lewis's poem reason reason oh, uh, a glorious poem yeah just Tell us a bit about that, because I think yeah. that fits in it. I, I
2: I write about that. So that whole book is a kind of creed, occur a sort of manifesto. <laughs> and essentially it's... it's this is a, your placard. Yeah. It is a defence of the imagination as a truth-bearing faculty. It's an analysis of those very issues in the Enlightenment we talked about. And then it tests the case. I say, look, if I think that the poetic imagination is just as much an instrument to tell you what is the case as the polished lens of a telescope, Let me take a series of poets, some Christian, some not Christian, and see what witness they bear, and see how consistent it is, and test what it is they do. So that's what I did in that book. But one of the uh, things I became aware of was, while I was writing that, was that the very thing I was trying to do in that book. There there were at least two great writers who got there first. You know, (laughs) one of them was Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and the other of whom was C.S. Lewis, and. um, uh, I was working at the same time on um, a chapter about C.S. Lewis's poetry for the Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis. And um, I became aware that there was a poem of his which was titled Reason. It was titled Reason in, um, in the, edition, the posthumous edition of 1964 that came out, Walter Hooper did. A great service to us all because he really left out. It was good. But I became convinced that Lewis couldn't have possibly titled the poem "Reason," because it's a poem about reason and imagination, mm. and precisely the question of how to reconcile them. And to have called the poem "Reason" would be to have upset the very balance. Which, you know, if I would have given the poem a title, I would have called it "Who," because it's really asking the question: who will reconcile these things? And um, I had the opportunity, fortunately, to meet and talk with Walter Hooper, who's a great man—you know, just a lovely, gentle kind of mm. southern gentleman—and. Mm. Um, and um, I asked him, you know, if in the, in the autograph manuscript that he was working for, whether Lucy had given it that title. He said, oh no, there was no title. Uh, I just gave it that title because it had reasoning in capital letters and well. it was in the first line. And he was working under pressure. I mean, it was a reasonable judgement sure. at the time but it is so, so I'm very glad so I wrote an article to the effect that it really shouldn't be called reason and did, uh, did you talk that with him oh yeah absolutely and he, know, he was that. very happy with that You know, mm. you know he, I, we, we talked that all through mm. and I talked about it with a, so I was very pleased that when this much more um, complete and scholarly edition of the collected poems came out which Don King has done a mm-hmm. uh, superb uh, collection um, he just get, titled it um, with its first line set mm. on the souls of Acropolis and um I also subsequently had further conversations about this poem with Alistair McGrath, the mm-hmm. professor in Oxford, mm-hmm. when he was working on the two new books on Lewis the that have now come out. And he was fairly radically revising the chronology That's right, of yes. Lewis's mm-hmm. conversion. Lewis's conversion was in stages, of mm-hmm. course, you know. It was from atheism to a kind of very high-minded theism, and a gradual movement from the theos in that theism from being an it to an I or a vow and then later the penny drops and he realises that one is in Christ reconciling the world to himself and it becomes a through So about three or four stages actually. Yeah um, and uh, it's a fascinating story. Anyway I had surmised that this poem from internal evidence I had surmised that it was written somewhere on the cusp of that second or if you like third conversion to Christ. Um, and I was guessing it might have been written there for about 1929. I imagine that after writing this poem you would end up as a Christian pretty quickly. <laughs> but Alistair McGrath reckons that this poem was written as early as 1926. <laughs> so the question asked who will reconcile is left hanging in Lewis's life for about four years. Just to give a bit of background, we'll read this poem. Uh, it, you may remember a fabulous passage in Surprise by Joy Lewis's own account Mm -hmm, of that mm -hmm. conversion, where he's talking about his life as a young Oxford philosophy don, because it's not often remembered that he came back from the Great War and then tried to. He couldn't get an English fellowship. Mm He he happened to have done three undergraduate degrees and got first in all of them simultaneously, English classics and philosophy, Mm -hmm. because he was C.S. Lewis and he could do that. Um, So he was a philosophy don. He was an atheist. but a very angry atheist, as the poems of the Great War, the, uh, as the war would make you, bro. would make you, yeah. Uh, and he was in philosophy trying to produce exactly the kind of reductive account of the world, the demythologizing, the, the explaining away. Um, you know, in other words, he was doing his best to be used to scrub, really. But secretly, mm. his guilty pleasure was poetry. Mm. And he was always sneaking away from this hardcore philosophy to feast his mind on the great northern myths. And in that book, Surprised by Joy, he says something like, the two hemispheres of my mind were in the sharpest contrast. Hmm. On the one uh, hand, uh, on the one side, an increasingly meaningless and purposeless world. On the other, a many islanded sea of myth and poetry. Um, nearly everything I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly everything I believed to be true, I found vain and, mm. and, and, and purposeless, you know. Well, he wrote that in the in, you know, in the 1950s, looking back at the, the 1920s, so you might say, well, you know, where's the evidence from the time? And this poem is the evidence from the time. And it's an amazing poem. It's a, he, he uses the metaphor or the analogy of ancient Athens mm-hmm. And he knows both about the great Greek geometricians and the logicians, but he also knows about the Eleusinian mysteries and, you know, the book. I don't think Dodd's great book, The Greeks and the Irrational, had been written and uh, I'm not sure, I don't think it had, but he certainly he knew his Greek texts since I So he begins to see those two aspects of the Greek mind are, are a good emblem for himself and for us. So this is what he writes. Sept on the soul's acropolis, the reason stands, a virgin armed, commercing with celestial light. And he who sins against her has defiled his own virginity. No cleansing makes his garment white. So clear is reason. But how dark imagining, warm, dark, obscure and infinite, daughter of night, dark is her brow. The beauty of her eyes With sleep is loaded And her pains are long And her delight Tempt not Athene Wound not in her fertile pains Demeter Nor rebel against her mother right Oh, who will reconcile in me Both maid and mother Who make in me a concord of the depth and height who make imaginations dim exploring touch ever report the same as intellectual sight then could i truly say and not deceive then wholly say that i believe and it's just astonishing Poem. so i mean there's so many good things about that poem um It completely blows away the false image that um, secular historians of literature like to give—that Lewis and the Inklings were this, these rather, well, clubbable men, you know, all donish together in their pipes and their tweed jackets, and probably had issues with women and couldn't Mm -hmm. relate to them, and utterly not in touch with their feminine side, and all this sort of stuff. None of which is true. Mm -hmm. And um, here's Lewis, right at the height of that saying, basically, my problem is I can't get my inner goddesses together. I mean, he, he, says, he yeah. says that the two great powers of the soul, the reason and the imagination, are both to be understood as feminine powers. And mm-hmm. that's interesting in so, itself. So, there he is. And the first part, where he's talking about Athene and reason, and, the, you know, of course, the Acropolis is perfect. When he says, he who sins against her has defiled his own virginity, no cleansing makes his garment white. Right. So, I think he's making a very important point. Which is that if something is demonstrably the case, you can't fake it, you can't fudge it. If two and two is four, it's four, mm. even if it wouldn't be much more convenient. There's no magical for you. thinking. Yeah, no magical thinking. You can't make it five for convenience, mm. nor can you pretend that it's you know that it's a hundred people in your crowd for political reasons <laughs> or whatever it might be. The, he puts his finger right, and the reason why no cleansing makes your government right is that if you dis, if you accept in your own mind a falsehood as truth mm. when you did know the truth but you go for the falsehood you damage your capacity to distinguish between truth and falsehood until you can't distinguish between them anymore talk about relevance and then you, have, <laughs> you know so you can't do that so you know he might like I would very much like there to be dragons in the world and as long as they're at a safe distance and I would like to find fairies at the bottom of the garden now I don't think I'm actually going to find them in the sense that I'll be able to sort of you know um, mount one and ride it I do think there are dragons in the world, both for good and for evil, in a spiritual sense. And I do think, you know, the leaves of this tree are alive with something more than the, the, the chloroform and the, and, and, and the wood. But I don't, I don't think the great myths and legends that I love are literally true, with one great exception which is the myth that the became myth. history, the true myth of the coming of Christ into the world, which gathers into it all the truth and beauty of the other ones. And so I can't, I, and I'm not going to fake results of a scientific experiment, and I'm not going to change a date in history to suit me. And if I did that, I would, I would sin against reason. And Lewis will not do that. And if reason at that point in his life prevents him from becoming a Christian because he doesn't think it's actually the case, mm. then he jolly well better not become a Christian until he really does think it is the case. Yeah? Because Christ is truth, and he won't having us come to him through a falsehood. So that's fine, but... And up to then, you know, the spirit of the age is with him. You know, mm. Ditch your old myths and stay with the maths, you know. But... He then says, how dark imagining, warm, dark, obscure, Something beautiful is happening. Wound not in her fertile pains, Demeter. Demeter is the one through whom everything comes up in spring. She's the, the spirit of the corn. She's the one who actually makes things fecund. And nothing, not even a great scientific theory, comes into being what without the fertile work of the particularly imagination. Particularly as you
1: were reading that, though, is um, you've got the logic, the reason, the just sort of objective truth. Yeah. But isn't it interesting how it's suffering and pain that is one of the things that he touches
2: on directly? Well, you see, there's all these contrasts between light and darkness. Mm. There's a redemptive darkness here. Intellect is to do with the sight. Imagination is to do with the touch. Now, her pains are long, and her delight is absolutely brilliant. Is that winter to spring? Well, it's winter to spring, but it's also... Pains that our capacity to suffer is an imaginative capacity. It mm-hmm. is so. It's pain in the literal sense of pain, mm-hmm. but obviously because Demeter is the creative spirit, she's the one, the imagination the making and shaping. Every artist takes pains over what they do. So it's painstaking work mm-hmm. in that sense. Her pains along, but of course she is the mother, so it's labour pain and the the, the the new work has to be formed in this wombing darkness and you can't keep you know opening the womb and shining a light on it and asking what's going on while the thing is going on you know you have to let it come to the light in its own way so t- womb not in her fertile up to meet her then he asks this great question who will reconcile in me both maid and mother who make in me a concord of the dead now he's looking for a liberator and a reconciler and you know he, it's like in a pantomime when somebody, you know, the character's say, where is he? And you want to shout, he's behind, behind you. you. Because look at what he asks. First of all, he's wanting a reconciler. Secondly, he's wanting someone who makes a concord of the depth. And I the whole passage here is consciously or unconsciously mm-hmm. record, reflecting the great prayer for believers in, in Ephesians um, 3, 14. You know, that you may know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, um, that you may know... The, the the length, the breadth, the height, the depth, and comprehend with all the saints, you know, that, that they comprehend. So there it is, and then who? Is, so Christ is the one who does this, and of course Christ is precisely the one who comes into the world through somebody who is both right. maid and mother, and is the reconciler. And in fact, this happened. We know on the famous occasion on on, on Addison's Walk when they'd been talking about the great myths that that Lewis loved mm-hmm. and. Balder were beautiful and everything and then they got on to Christianity Lewis says and Lewis says oh, I can't you know, you know even if it's the case let us suppose this is it. with Tolkien yeah with Tolkien and, and Dyson look even if it's the case that this man you know died and actually rose you know 2,000 years ago you know that was then this is a Monday night in Oxford what difference does it make to me mm. and Tolkien is saying but can't you see the mythic resonance of it you know you mm. you respond to Baldur. can't you respond he says, oh, yeah but this is fact not myth so, now, can't you see that it's both? Can't you, can mm-hmm. you not see that all the myths we've ever made, the heart and core and beauty of them that was given by God, has been taken by God and written, not on the pages of a book, but in the very facts of history, accessible to reason as much as to imagination? Mm-hmm. And you can see, as, as Lewis is walking along, the two hemispheres of his mind, kind of trembling and coming mm-hmm. together, and this wonderful sense in which he gets an answer to this mm-hmm. question. And that answer releases him, I think, as a writer, created as well as as a person. Mm. So, I mean, it's no one would want to deny that Christ came to Lewis as a personal saviour as he comes Mm. to all of us, you know, by his blood, our sins. But he also came to him as a great reconciler, a a solution to a fundamental split in our culture between reason and imagination. Christ brings them together because he's the Logos from
1: whom they both come. Now, I want to come back to that thought in a sec, but it's interesting because it's almost as if it's reconciling the child, Jack, and the adult, Lewis, as well. There is that
2: as well, yeah. Because well, Lewis, I mean, Coleridge said that it defined a poet as a person who brings the vision of the child into the powers of the adult. Hmm. And there's certainly something... It's a very interesting thing, talking about the child in Lewis and the adult. If you look at the range of the... Certainly, in, if you look in the Narnia stories, the most mature characters in in his stories are the ones who still have the child in them alive. I mean, most obviously Professor Kirk, who was Diggory as a little boy. And the most immature characters are the ones who are trying to be grown up all the time, like Eustace. And, you know, there's a problem for Susan as she comes to that grown-upness, whether she loses touch or not. Um, and, of course, this is a paradox in the Gospel, because on the one hand, Jesus says, um, Takes the little child and says unless you become like a little child you shall not inherit the kingdom. The kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And on the other hand Paul says don't be infants anymore blown blown about by every wind of doctrine, but grow up into the fullness of the stature of Christ. But the fullness of the stature of Christ clearly includes Being the child. The infant and the child. So Lewis says somewhere, I think it's in his essay on three ways of writing for children. He says, you know, when I was a child, I thought like a child. When I became a grown-up, I put away childish things, including the desire to be thought grown-up. You know, (laughs) know, I don't have to prove my maturity. Um, Needing to prove it would itself be an immature thing.
1: As you were reading that, I think the rhetorical force of it came through very strongly, particularly as a kind of biblical question. I mean, it felt like Romans 7 and 8. Yeah. Um, Which is astonishing because obviously he would have known parts of the Bible as every educated educated person person
2: did, yeah. But
1: the emotional force of it is so strong.
2: Yeah, it is. It's very powerful. And it it doesn't
1: seem to lead anywhere other
2: than Christ. uh, And And I would want to say that this was not simply the key question in Lewis's life. I would say Lewis here is the canary in the cage for the whole Mm. of 20th and still 21st Mm. century culture. We have made a terrible split, Mm. which is tearing us all psychically apart. And turning us you know, and there are, uh, people choose one half of their mind and not the other. And then the other half takes revenge on them in various dark ways. We need the reconciler.
1: Now, that, that leads me then to something that blew me away from this, and I think it gets touched in on in, in your book, Mariner, about Samuel Taylor Coleridge, um, was um, his understanding of the Logos mm. as not being reason, which is the classic way it's been yeah, yeah. handed down, interpreted, maybe the sort of classic Greek thought, mm. but actually the Logos was imagination, divine yeah. imagination. Yeah. Now, Do you want to just sort of unpack that a bit? Yeah. That was t-
2: so, yeah, this is, I mean, when Augustine, <laughs> um, developing the notion of the Logos, uses a word which is then given as reason, but what reason meant in Augustine's day is a very different thing from mm. what it had come to mean, you know, in the 19th century. Mm. Um, I mean Augustine uh, he, wrote, he wrote an early book called De Magistrate The Teacher in which he, 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 to, he talks about the idea that when you grasp something when a teacher teaches you something and you go aha oh that's the case he says actually, you think it's the teacher because you ha- the teacher happened to be speaking and you, when you had your aha moment mm-hmm. but actually in order for you to know that it was true you had to bring it to the bar of reason to some kind of internal uh, as it were imprimatur and monitor and uh, plato would have said that this was your anamnesis your recollection of mm-hmm. the, you know the perfect forms before you were born but augustine by this time as a christian was not convinced that there was you know we, we didn't believe in reincarnation or mm-hmm. the rest of that so but then he was reading his gospel his john's gospel and he saw that christ is not only the word the logos who is the the coherence and uh, you know and reason if you like behind all this but also a light, and the light that lightens everyone that comes into the world, that there's a Logos in here as well as, you know, which corresponds. That there is there is the Logos, it is the Logos who affirms to us what is the, what is the truth. And he, that's why Christ is the teacher with a capital T. Hmm. And um, uh, so Augustine got that, but when you read Augustine's Confessions, and he keeps coming back to the Logos as light, it is often with and through images. It's not just through reasonable propositions. Mm. So Coleridge, uh, coming to think again about the importance of the Logos as meaning, had by that time realized, something that Lewis himself also later says, possibly getting it from Coleridge, that imagination is the organ of meaning. That you can have as, as big a pile of facts and information as you like obtained by, by, by rational processes of um, logical deduction. But you don't know what they mean. They have to speak to your soul, and then you have to they have to become coherent and have purpose, and that requires imagination. Imagination gives a luminous unity and whole to disparate things, and that therefore the the coherence and meaning and wholeness that we find in the patterns of nature has an imaginative basis, and that imaginative basis is also the logos in and whom and through whom all things. So, so. Um, one of the, th- the ways Coleridge came at that was to simply change analogies. I mean, all all of our thinking is by analogy. Mm-hmm. Language is by analogy, and big dominant movements in philosophy and science tend to be governed by particular analogies, which become master analogies, which are so so the pervasive, yeah, paradigms that nobody even knows they're using them. They take them to be the case, but actually they're a model. So, and they often correspond with our own inventiveness. So, once we've invented clockwork, once we would made a mechanism that you could wind up where one cog turned another, and the thing seemed to move by magic, but actually there was a spring gradually turning it. And we'd seen how action and reaction could create this regular pattern. We looked around and thought, "God, oh, there's a regular pattern, it must be a big clock, you know. And immediately, we had a clockwork view of God. Which makes God the divine watchmaker or the blind watchmaker if you read really. who's you know who's made the thing, wound it up, and retired to an infinite distance and paring his fingernails while it winds down. And, you know, he'sn't there. He's not necessary to the machine. So he's evacu the machine is evacuated. And that was the predominantly, you know, 18th and the de- 18th the century the
1: view. Analogy has determined yeah. Yeah. The yeah. theology.
2: Exactly. exactly, to determined everything. But we've forgotten it was an analogy. Mm. So now, because we've invented computers. And we have, the, we have the difference between hardware and software. We're, we're degrading ourselves. It's just exactly like it says in Isaiah and the Psalms, those who make them, sh- about idols, mm-hmm. those who make them shall be like unto them, as they have seen not. We make computers, which are much lesser things than we are, because we made them. Mm-hmm. And then we make, remake ourselves in the image. And we talk about our brain being hardwired for stuff. And then we do odious things to children and prisoners and people and reprogram them and say we're just changing their software. And it's an, it's an appalling and limiting analogy. Now, the first thing to liberate yourself from an analogy is to have more than one. And the second is to remember that it's an analogy. So Coleridge inven- inherited what he called, quote, this whole watchmaking scheme of things. And he felt it to be inadequate. And so he found another analogy which was just as helpful, indeed more so. And that's the the analogy of language, that he says, look, I could write you a poem, and I'd put it down on a piece of paper, and there it is, and I could give it to you. And if you were so minded, you could do a chemical analysis of the paper, Mm -hmm. and you could do a wonderful job on that and write several volumes about what constituted the paper. Then you could notice the letters and you could do a statistical thing on the repetitions and whether they were random or not. Perhaps they're not random, but God knows why they come like this. And then you do a geometrical thing on the shape of them. And you could do it for years without ever knowing it was a poem. Then one day somebody said, by the way, it's a poem. They could read it to you. Now, every single thing you found out mathematically about the paper and the frequency of the letters would still be true and possibly useful to somebody. The fact that it's a poem doesn't change any of that. But it suddenly makes you realize that all that was there for a purpose. And the purpose was that you should hear the poet. So quite early, before he'd fully recovered his full Trinitarian Christianity, when he's feeling his way towards it, he was thinking about his own child growing up. And you know he writes the famous Frost at Midnight. You know,
0: mm,
2: and he says, Thou, my child, shall wander like a breeze by lakes and sandy shores beneath the crags of mountains. Comparing with his dull time in an English school in London. And then he says about Hartley growing up, he says, So shalt thou see and hear the lovely shapes and sounds intelligible of that eternal language which thy God utters, mm. who doth teach himself in all and all things in himself, great universal teacher, he shall mould thy spirit, and by giving, make it ours. Mm. That's great definition of teaching, by giving, mm. make it ours. But do you see, all these things about which we could write scientific things very beautifully are also words. They mean something. They're an utterance. Now, once Coleridge had got hold of that insight, it wouldn't let him go. Mm. And eventually he came to say that if they are speech, there's a speaker, there's God speaking. And then pursuing the analogy of the poem, he realised by that time that his reader needed to be as imaginative as he was. That when you enjoy a great Coleridge poem or a Shakespeare poem, you're at least as good as you think the poem is. Because the actual materiality of the poem is just a poor, weak thing that's been poured into mm-hmm. you. It's your imagination that gets to work on it and makes it the lucid thing. You know, the poem shimmers into being in the, in the meeting of the mind of poet and reader through the veil of the sound and vision materiality mm-hmm. of the poem. Now, once Coleridge had grasped that that was true of the cosmos, he then realised that in order to perceive the cosmos as we do drenched in meaning there must be something of the divine imagination in here. And so he came in the Biographia Literaria, you know, when he'd become a Christian, about, you know, about 21 years after he'd written that Frost at Midnight poem, he came to say that the primary imagination is the living power and prime agent of all perception. And then this is the key thing. This is the theological thing he said that's always ignored in the English textbooks. He said, it's the primary imagination, living power and prime agent of all perception. So you and I, and you know, the fellow rabbits who are perceiving us through all of this. Every time we see the human face divine, are exercising the power of imagination. So it's not just a jumble of data, Mm. it's Mm. a person. And we're not just passive recipients. No, we're actively, now that's agent is the key. So first of all he says about us, bit of anthropology if you like, it's the living power and prime agent of all perception. Then he leaps to the theology, which is what the English Mm. textbooks are. The living power and prime agent of all perception and a repetition in the finite mind, of the eternal act of creation in the infinite I am. Mm. So what he's actually saying is when you and I sit together under this Indian green tree, as we perceive it imaginatively, the eternal I am, the divine logos, is speaking it and us into being. Mm. God is reading us the poem of our being. Mm. And we need to hear it. What we've done perversely just for the last couple of hundred years, so it's a blip in long terms, we will get over it, but we're just beginning to get over Mm. it now, is all the time God's been reading the divine poem to us, we've been making tiny footnotes about the colour of the ink. Or we've been doing that. Or we've been doing that. Mm. And that's why we need the artists Mm. (laughs) and the the poets and the musicians and the painters to wake up Mm. the imaginative perceiving, Because it's, although, you know, we think the imagination is just about made-up stuff, of course you can make up a word, Mm. that's fine. Coleridge uses the word fancy for that. But the imagination is there to help us perceive the great poem of our existence Mm. in its height and depth. And, um, you know, you can trace a line. From the time we started to go wrong, which was around the time that um, Coleridge was born, right through to the worst excesses of the industrialised mm. mechanical warfare of the 20th century, there has been a line of prophetic people who have stood up stood up contra mundum against the world, who've, who've, who've begged to differ, who've held up the candle of the imagination, even as the cynics were trying to snuff it out. And Coleridge is one of them, and George MacDonald, who's a massive Coleridge fan, yeah. was another, and then Lewis. And so it comes down to our generation, and there are those in our generation who are still doing that. And it's about keeping that vision alive until we generally recover it.
1: I read an amazing um, interview with um, James Houston who founded Regents College in Vancouver. Oh, yes, yeah, that's a great place. And um, I know you've done some teaching there, haven't you? And um, uh, he had known Lewis in the last months of his life in Cambridge and dared to ask him what his life's work had been about. And almost, I think, I'm, I'm quoting this accurately, but I think almost without blinking, Lewis just said, against reductionism. Against reductionism, yeah, absolutely. And Nothing but it, yeah. That, exactly. And that fits entirely with everything we've been talking about, basically. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So I think, um, as we've come to an end, I think we should have some poetry. Right, well... Because what better way to end?
2: So we've mentioned Lewis's poetry and the Narnia books, but of course, he was so alert to the, this crisis of meaning and this reducti- the, the danger of this reductivism, and particularly in science, that he also wrote a very prophetic book um, called *The Abolition of Man*, dealing with that you know at an academic level. And in the end of that book, he calls for a new kind of science, uh, which combines analytic reason with a holistic, intuitive, imaginative, empathic approach to nature that recognises that they're part of it. And I found it um, fascinating. And the more I read it, that final chapter in The Abolition of Man, the more I felt the prose was poetic. So I decided to have a go at what's called a found poem, which is where the poet discerns, as it were, a poem quivering like a shy deer in the thicket of somebody else's prose and sort of encourages it out. So every single phrase in this poem, which is just called Imagine, comes from Lewis's The Abolition of Man. And I've just put them in a sort of evocative way. And it's
1: redeeming the word from John Lennon, presumably. Oh yes,
2: absolutely, yeah. (laughs) I do that more than once, but yes. Um, Here is the poem Imagine. Imagine a new natural philosophy. I hardly know what I am asking for, far off echoes, that primeval sense with blood and sap, man's prehistoric piety, continually conscious, continually alive, alive and growing like a tree, and trees as dryads or as beautiful, the bleeding trees in Virgil and in Spencer, the tree of knowledge and the tree of life growing together. That great ritual pattern of nature, beauties branching out, the cosmic order, ceremonial, regenerate science, seeing from within, to participate is to be truly human. Um, And then perhaps, since we're still on Lewis, I could read the poem I wrote for Lewis, um, which was on, well, the occasion, the in Westminster, that yeah, on the occasion of the, the dedication in, in, in Westminster Abbey of the Stone in Poet's Corner, mm-hmm. which uh, the great Michael Ward did so much to facilitate. Mm-hmm. The only thing you need to know about this poem is that um, uh, Lewis, like all the Oxford Dons, had to teach undergraduates Anglo-Saxon, which was quite challenging. As it happens, my father-in-law was one of his students at Magdalen, and... Um, Loved him and, and uh, got a first. Uh, and uh, Lewis, instead of calling it sort of, you know, Anglo Saxon irregular verbs 101, the vowel shift, he called it beer and Beowulf and had a big jug of beer, you know, on the, on, on the counter and, and copies of Beowulf and quats, you know, away you go for it. From beer and Beowulf to the seven heavens, whose music you conduct from sphere to sphere. You are our portal to those hidden havens whence we return to bless our being here. Scribe of the kingdom, keeper of the door which opens onto all we might have lost, ward of a word hoard in the deep heart's core, telling the tale of love from first to last, generous, capacious, open, free, your wardrobe mind has furnished us with worlds through which to travel, whence we learn to see along the beam and hear at last the heralds sounding their summons through the stars that sing, whose call at sunrise brings us to our king. And seeing along the beam in Woodshed, That's shed. a meditation in a tool shed, yeah. Yes. yeah. The, the difference between contemplation and enjoyment.
0: And, Wonderful. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. If you're wondering what in the world a hutch mood is, You are not alone. Let me give you the short version. Hutchmoot is an annual arts conference hosted by The Rabbit Room in which we gather people together around art, music, story, and faith. If you want the long version, check out the website at hutchmoot.com where all of your questions, or at least some of them, will be answered.